All right. Well, this morning is going to be a, uh, just a teaching, and I'm going to talk about something that is just awesome. And um, when I say awesome, it's awe. There's a lot of awe in this. Uh, it's actually a message that is going to <coughs> bless me. And I'll explain that in a minute. It's going to bless me. And it's also going to bless you. And the reason is because we're going to read from the book of Revelations. So hopefully, Lord willing, this morning and next week, we're going to cover the first three chapters of Revelations more specifically. So, you know, we're going to focus in on the letters to the churches, um, the letters written by our Lord Jesus. And we'll, we'll dig into that. But it's a uh, it's a, it's a an awesome thing because it can bless not only the one who reads but the one who hears, and I I want to explain that just by showing you what it says. So I'm going to have a lot of scriptures today, and well, not a lot, but I'm going to have a lot of things on slides. But if you want to follow along in your Bible, that's fine too. If you take a look at Revelations chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, here's what it says. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And here's this good part I told you about. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's going to be me this morning. Lord willing, I'm going to be blessed by this. But for you as well. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. That's an incredible verse. And I, will encur I would encourage all of you, actually, to make the reading of Revelations aloud a practice in your life. Why? It's very clear why. You will be blessed when you do so, and those who hear you, if they take it to heart, will be blessed as well. This is not just, um, these aren't just words. This actually means what it says. Therefore, I would encourage all of you to read aloud the book of Revelations as much as you possibly can. I know it's something that I do regularly, uh, especially when I feel like um, there's, a, there's a need to shift the atmosphere in my home. I will crack open the book of Revelations and begin reading allowed. But uh, as you can see from that scripture there, God gave the revelation to Jesus. It's an interesting uh, sequence. God gave the revelation to Jesus. Jesus, and, and the reason God gave the revelation to Jesus was for his servants. We would be included in that. Then Jesus gave his revelation, this revelation, to an angel 
who then took this revelation to John. And John being one of the last apostles still alive, uh, he took this revelation to John. John, if you recall, is one of the disciples who was closest to Jesus, one of the three, even the one who uh, laid his head on Jesus's chest when they were having that, that last meal together. They were close. And actually, John is the one who Jesus put his own earthly mother in his care when Jesus was leaving this earth. So I just thought it, would, it was good to remember that. And John then, and we also see the Holy Spirit involved. You'll see at the end of each of these letters, it says that the, the Spirit is speaking to the churches. So the Spirit is involved, the Holy Spirit is involved with communicating this revelation to the churches as well. Now here's the, here's the all part, here's the scary part, uh, especially for me. Um, but before I say that, I, I did want to show you one other thing, and that's in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says, on the Lord's day, this is John speaking, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So those are the seven churches to whom these seven letters are being written. And I don't have a slide with a map, but if you looked at it, these churches reside in what is now modern-day Turkey. They were not that far from one another. Um, you could, you could kind of do a circuit in a, in a circle, right, really, to get to all these churches. Um, and that's where a hub of, of travel was, and also a hub of the, the work of uh, the early church and the gospel going forth. So these are the churches. These, these are the churches that uh, John was instructed to, to write this down. So remember that as we read this, this is not revelation and, and these letters to the churches this is not John's writing. This is Jesus' writing. And most of you, if you look at your Bibles, if you have a Bible that's a red letter Bible, you'll actually see as we read these letters, they are in red. The text is in red because it is Jesus who is the author of these letters. And to me, that is just uh, an incredible thing. We see a lot of the letters in the New Testament. We talk about them a lot. We read through them a lot. But do you realize that uh, Jesus Christ wrote letters to the churches? And that's what we're going to look at because these letters are applicable to us as well. Now, here's the scary thing. Revelations chapter 1, verses 10 through 7. Uh, no, sorry. Revelations 22. This is at the end of Revelations. One of the last things that this angel says to John is this right here. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. This is a warning. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll, when you see scroll, you could say book might help us bring it to more modern terms. 
And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Now, those are, for me, terrifying words, and they should be for all of us. Now, perhaps this is why many churches don't teach on revelations. However, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think, unfortunately, many churches don't teach on revelations or from revelations because revelation has Revelation has been kind of deemed as a complicated book. It's complex. There's a lot of things that are hard to understand. And therefore, it's, it's, there's a lot of debate as to how it's to be interpreted. And that can cause a lot of people, including myself, to steer away from teaching from this book. But if we do teach from this book... And that goes for any of you doing anything with talking about revelations. We need to keep this last warning in mind. Because this is not a hollow warning. God's words are never hollow. So, I do this with fear and trembling. And the, and the way that I try to do this carefully reverently and fearfully is I try not to say more than what the scripture is saying and not to say less than what the scripture is saying. Um, so I'm going to be very careful as we always should when we are teaching from this book of prophecy. Now, the great thing about this book is though it can be complicated, though it can seem complex, there is so much that isn't complicated and complex. And we should be looking at that. We should be looking at all of it. But at the very least, we should be paying attention to the things that are very clear. Very, there's, there's, it, they're very clear. And this, this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. It's chapters 1 through 3. And it's the actual letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. Now, the whole book of prophecy is for the churches, including churches now, us. But um, these letters that he wrote, they're, they're very, very clear for us. There's no thing, nothing. I mean, there's a lot of people interpret revelations in different ways. There's different ways of interpreting revelations. The preacherist, the historicist, the, the idealist, all these things. But I am, that is not me. I'm not getting into that. What I'm going to get into is what's obvious. And I love to read the Bible in such a way that I want to learn who God is. And when it comes to the book of Revelations and the letters that Jesus Christ wrote to us, to the churches at that, in that time, and to us, I want to hear what he has to say, and I want to know what is important to him. And these, these do that in such a powerful way. They're not easy to read when we apply them and put ourselves under the microscope, they're not. But they are so powerful and so life-giving and so important because of the warnings that they hold. So, let me set the scene just a little bit. 
So we have John. This is John, the disciple John, the apostle John, the John who wrote the three letters to the churches, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the John who is so close to Jesus, the John who took care of Jesus' mother, Mary. This is that same John. It's very interesting to know that there is such a difference in the writing of Revelation by John, his, the way he wrote Revelation in Greek. If, you're a, uh, if, if a Greek scholar, well, you'll hear this from Greek scholars, I am not one, but Greek scholars will say the difference in how he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and how he wrote Revelation is so dramatically different in how well it is written, uh, the, the, the grammar, the, uh, the flow of it, all of that. It is so different that some have um, concluded that this is actually a different John. And they have actually dug and dug to try to find a different John than, than the disciple John, than the apostle John. And, and some have even found a John that was mentioned somewhere who's a, uh, an elder John, and they think, well, maybe this is that John. But I think when we take into account some of these scriptures that we have just read and some of the warnings, I think we can understand why this was written differently. So here's the scene. John, the apostle John, has been exiled to the island of Patmos, that still exists today. You can go there and, and do a tour and everything. John has been exiled there. And he says that he's been exiled there for, uh, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So that is why he has been banished to that island. Think of it as like uh, an Alcatraz of that day. Has anyone been to Alcatraz? I mean, we don't, that movie is very old. Surely someone else has been to Alcatraz. Okay, all right. <laughs> I went there years and years ago. Pam and I both did. Anyway, Alcatraz is this island off of San Francisco, San Francisco coast. Yeah, this little island, but I think Patmos is a little bit bigger than that. But anyway, where they would put the worst of the criminals, the worst of the prisoners. This island, no way to uh, escape from it without a, a boat. Uh, and that's where they would, they would put the worst of the prisoners. So this was what Patmos was used. The island of Patmos was used for. They would just... The Roman government would put uh, convicts, um, thieves that, that they say, or uh, criminals that, that needed to just be banished and let them live on that island. Anyway, John is there, and we know why he's there, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. And probably he was not willing to say, Caesar is Lord. And there he has found himself there on the island of Patmos. Now, according to tradition, to a tradition that's been preserved by our early church fathers and some of the writers uh, that uh, came after the, 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 the writers in the New Testament, but early church fathers, they say that John was exiled to Patmos in the year 95 AD during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. And it says that John... John, when he's writing, says that he was in the spirit when he heard this loud voice that we just read behind him. <clears throat> so here is John on this island, very secluded, and he is obviously, he's praying, 
and communing, and he is in the spirit. And that is when all of this begins. Now, how should we receive these letters? Like I said, there's various ways to interpret the book of Revelations. But I would say these letters are probably the least controversial. We can receive these letters as if they were written to us. And we need to. We need to be sure if any of these are applicable. They are all applicable. But what I mean by that is as the cowgirl Jesse in Toy Story so vividly said, if the boot fits. So if the boot fits, we must put it on. And then we must take action to find a new pair of shoes and repent of why and repent of how our feet have taken us to that place. If it doesn't fit, great. Then we just be diligent to make sure we never get to that place where the boot fits. But we need to read these in that way, putting ourselves, when I say ourselves, I'm talking about the church, this church. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the church, but I'm talking about Life Point Church, this body of Christ right here. Us. We are one of the churches to whom Jesus could address these letters. And we must take these individually as well because we are all believers and Jesus is talking to believers. So let's receive what Jesus has to say through these letters. Now, I want to... I want, to, I want you to take notice of a few themes that you're going to see throughout these letters. Common phrases, common statements, and it's important that we pay attention to these. The first one I really want you to pay attention to, and in your Bible as you go through these, and I do recommend you read all of these, maybe between now and next Sunday, read them yourself, but I want you to underline especially this one, highlight it. Because in every, in all seven letters, in every letter that he wrote, it speaks to, and the word will be different in different translations, but it speaks to those who overcome, or those who are victorious, or those who conquer. Depending on what translation you have, it will be likely one of those three. And I want you to really pay attention to these as we get to them because they're in every letter and it's important that we notice what Jesus is saying. The other thing I want us to pay attention to is when he talks about uh, ears and hearing. I just noticed this light was on. I don't know how you turn it off. No, it's Okay. If I hadn't looked back here, I wouldn't have saw it. It would have been fun. Awesome. Thank you. I keep bumping this. That's why I looked at it. It's like, what's wrong? <clears throat> All right. The other thing is when it talks about ears. Those who have ears. Now, listen, this is a uh, rhetorical question. We, we all have ears. Those who are listening to this all, all have ears. Whenever Jesus talks about this or says this, what he's saying is 
Those who have ears, listen. Hear what I'm saying. He's bringing attention to these, to these things that you should not just, as we would say, let it go in one ear and out the other, but that we should hear and take hold of what we hear. Don't let it just flow right through you and never stick, but listen to what he's saying. So he, he says that several times. Another thing I want, to, what, want you to, to take notice of is how often he speaks of works. Now, listen, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again because I do believe this is one of the deceptive uh, false teachings that are going out today. And one of the things that it, it, it focuses on is that basically works is a... Uh, it's a legalistic thing that we cannot have in our life because it's trying to earn our salvation. Now, if you're going to go that route, you have, a lot of, you have a lot of wrestling to do with Scripture because throughout Scripture, works, especially in the New Testament, works is, is all over it. And Jesus has a lot to say about works. Now, like I said before, what we are not talking about is we are not talking about the works of the law, the works of the law of Moses. We're not talking about those works as often as they are described in the Old Testament. However, the works that we are talking about are works of righteousness. And there's a lot of the same. Some of the works of the law of Moses are righteous works. The law is good. It's to show us how evil we are. So there's a lot of good about it. But we're not to follow that, that law. We're to follow Christ's law, the law of liberty, the royal law, which allows the Holy Spirit to show us right from wrong. But it doesn't mean there's no works involved. It's doing deeds and works of righteousness. It's doing good. And God... And Jesus have a lot to say about their expectation of us to be doing good works, works of righteousness. So that's another thing I want you to perhaps highlight and just pay attention to because it's used a lot. And lastly, the word repent. And we know what repent is, but I'm going to emphasize it again. Repentance is not only a change of your mind about something. But it's a change of your mind about something that leads to a change in direction. So if I am going in a sinful direction and I am going down a path I have chosen to go down, that's not the path God wants me to go down and I have chosen to do that. For me to repent isn't just to say, ah, this is not right. I really shouldn't be doing this. I really changed my mind about this and then continue going down the same path. That is not repentance. That is not the biblical understanding of repentance. Repentance is, yes, recognizing, what am I doing? This is wrong. This is not the right way. Changing my mind and then turning around and turning back to God and going back to him, going back to his way. 
So I think we're all clear on that. But listen, you'll be amazed how that, that doctrine right there, which is a very important one, is being twisted and perverted today to where it's really simply a change of your mind, not a change of your actions or your directions or the things that you do. And that is a false and dangerous teaching, as we'll see as we read Jesus's words. Okay, <clears throat> by the way, my disclaimer is I have no idea where I'm going to land with this time-wise. But I have another Sunday to finish uh, what we don't get done today. So, all right, this is how we're going to look at these letters. We're going to ask six questions. After we read each letter, we're going to ask six questions. And here are the questions, the six questions we're going to ask. Who was the author? To whom was it written? What were they doing right? What were they doing wrong? How do they overcome it? What is the promised reward? Now, just to, just to make some comments about each of those. Number one and number two is going to, and I'll give you a hint right now, it's going to be the same on every letter. And that is, who was the author? The author was not John. John was the scribe. And he was at such an awe at times when he was writing, he was stopped writing. And they have, the angel or Jesus had to remind him, write this down. What are you doing? Keep writing. What I was going to say earlier about, I'm not sure how I got off, what I was going to say earlier about writing, the, the comparison between John's writing, uh, his letters, and, and the, Revelation, the book of Revelation, the reason it's so different is what we read right there. Not only was he in a vision seeing incredible things that he had never seen, not only did he see Jesus himself, not the, not the brother he walked with in a sense, laid his head on his chest. No, one with bronze feet, white hair, a fire in his eyes, so much so that John fainted in front of him. Now, of anyone who could feel close to Jesus, John would be the one, more than any of the other disciples, more than any of us, he walked intimately with him for three years on this earth. Yet when he saw Jesus in this vision, he passed out in front of him because it was a terrifying sight to see. But thankfully, Jesus, as scripture says, put, puts his right hand on him and says, fear not. Now, what I was gonna say is not only was he saying, now write this down, write everything that you see. So imagine this, John is seeing this incredible revelation, this vision. This was very real to him. But at the same time, he was ta taxed with writing it all down. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I was terrible at taking notes in school. I don't think I took notes in high school, but college, I was supposed to take notes and I I, I tried to take notes. My wife will remember we had some classes together. I, my thing is, if I'm focused, whatever I'm focused on, I tune out the other. So if I'm focused on taking notes, I'm not hearing what the professor is saying. Pam knows. Don't talk to me if I'm doing anything else. She'll just wait. <laughs> Otherwise, she's going to have to repeat it. 
She's so patient with me. So, so here's John having to watch and see all of this incredible stuff and write it down. So he's doing that as he's seeing it. He's trying to write it down the best that he can. Now, let me tell you, let me ask you something. If you were to write a book and publish it, and, and then compare that to if you were to um, report on some type of amazing thing that just happened, let's say, uh, um, I don't know, some kind of big uh, event, and you're there watching it, and you're supposed to report on it, and you're supposed to journalize, and you're supposed to take notes. Do you think how you take notes and how you write is going to be anything like you would if you were going to publish a book? No, all these other New Testament writers, including John, when he wrote his letters, had time to think about what the Spirit was telling him, to have time to think about how he's going to word that, how he's going to best write that, the best way to, to express that and proper grammar and all of that. No such, no such uh, opportunity to do that now with John watching this stuff as it's happening and he's supposed to be writing it down. He is jotting this stuff down like one of those court, what do you call those people? Yeah, they're like, you know, they got the shortcut keys and all of that. It's easy for them to keep up, but John's having to write this. So, and not only that, but at the end, the last thing the angel says is, anyone who adds to it will be added the plagues and the curses of this book will be added to him. Anyone who adds or takes away from it will be under a curse. Now, I know if I was in that position and I managed to scribble out everything I was seeing, the last thing I would go, do is go back and try to edit it and clean it up. Why? Because you would probably forget something, take away. You would probably add something that doesn't need to be added. No, the last thing John was going to do is to go back and try to clean that up. So I think that's probably the reason we got such a difference in writing style between the book of Revelation and 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, or the Gospel of John. All right, let's move on. So these are the questions that we're going to ask. So number one and number two are going to be the same. But don't just gloss over this. The author is Jesus. We should be paying so much attention to what Jesus is writing to us. To whom it was written. And we'll see every church that he, uh, to whom he writes. And this will also include us today. All of the things that he says we can apply to ourselves. <clears throat> What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? Because these are the things that Jesus addresses. How do they overcome it? And you're going to see that threaded throughout these letters, that Jesus is calling us to be overcomers, victorious, conquerors. We have to pay attention to this. And we have to remember to whom it was written. Listen, to whom it was written. These letters were not written to unbelievers. We must understand that. Because if we think they're written to unbelievers, we will think these things don't apply to us. 
These letters were written to believers in the churches. And not only that, these were believers not far removed from Jesus Christ being there himself. John was the one scribing, one of Jesus' disciples. This is when the early church, I mean, we might have the second generation, but not much further than that, really, the second generation church. So I would, I would dare to say that these people probably, probably knew how to walk the walk a little bit better than we do. Yet listen to what Jesus has to say to him, to them. Because if he's saying it to them, I can be sure that it's, they are likely going to apply to us. These words are going to apply to us. And what is the promised reward? Throughout the Bible, God is unapologetic about rewards. Listen, we, we can say things like, oh, you know, you shouldn't be bribing someone to whatever. And if you want to look at that like that, that's fine. But you've got an issue with God because throughout Scripture, God talks about the rewards that he will give those who do what he says, those who follow his ways, those who obey his commandments, the many, many rewards. So let's, let's definitely not, this, that's a positive thing. That is a good thing. Jesus is unapologetic. There are rewards that come along with being his faithful people. I want to know about them. I want to, listen, allow them to motivate me. As well as allowing fear to motivate me. God is unapologetic about fear. Listen, if a lot of, and this is another thing we've got to be careful about. A lot of people have forsaken the teaching of the fear of God to our detriment, to our danger. It is dangerous to forget about the fear of God. It is the beginning of all wisdom. And if you go back and read God's definition of what he says the fear of God is, you will see it a lot differently and it'll help you when someone's saying you don't need to fear the Lord, you can say, no, that, that is contrary to scripture. Now, John passed out in front of Jesus, but Jesus put his hand on him and said, fear not. We have a God who will say to us, fear not, take courage, be strong. But that doesn't mean we don't fear God. Jesus said, don't fear man, but fear God who can not only destroy your body, but destroy your soul in hell. Jesus said that. Okay, I'm going to move on. All right, so here we go. The first one, to the church in Ephesus. Let's read it. Revelations chapter 2, starting with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. And remember, many of your Bibles are going to have this in red words because this is Jesus talking. This is his revelation. This is... Um, his words to the churches. I know your deeds, or you could say works, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have, pre- you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Wow. So let's run this through our six questions. Well, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't spend any time on the first two, but to make sure we get this right, who is the author? Jesus. And to whom was it re- written? Church of Ephesus, which means they are believers, Christians. Okay? I just want to make sure we are very clear about who Jesus is is talking to and writing these letters to. All right. So now I did have this in a way that it was going to do one by one, but unfortunately they're all on here. So try not to read ahead, but here we go. What were they doing right? Well, Jesus said they were hard working. They were working hard. Some translations may say they toiled. They were working hard for the kingdom's sake. Secondly, they were patiently enduring hardships. Listen, at that time, there was a lot of persecution going on to the early church because these people thought they were following a, a, a false teacher. Jesus, in the eyes of the Jewish people, was a false teacher. And as this spread out to the Gentile nations, we're, we're talking about people who worshiped other gods. And so they were patiently enduring these hardships. He said that they did not tolerate those who were evil, or you could say evildoers. Those who were doing evil, they would not tolerate them in their church. Jesus commends them for that. They tested any self-proclaimed apostles and found them to be false. An apostle is someone who is sent, basically is what it means. So people would come into their churches and say, I've been sent by God. And perhaps they would even prophesy. And so these believers in the church in Ephesus would do as all churches should do. They would test their prophecy. They would check them. They would check them against scripture. They would check them against, okay, you say this is going to happen. Let's see if it happens. I think we have lost the fear of the Lord when it comes to prophecy. And we've turned it into almost almost a way of trying to divine someone's, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Listen, if we get back to a healthy place of understanding 
what God thought about false prophets, I think we would be a lot more careful about speaking prophecy. It doesn't mean prophecy is not for today. That is not what I'm saying. We need more prophecy, as Paul said. We should be seeking this. But we need to be sure that when we say, thus saith the Lord, we are absolutely positive we, this, is a, this is coming from God. Because prophecy is a very serious thing when you get it wrong. Not that we can't make mistakes with it, but there's a way to present a thus saith the Lord in such a way that, hey, I may be very wrong about this. I, I sense that maybe the Lord is saying this. That's a much different way than saying, thus saith the Lord, and boom. So if they were coming in and saying, I've been sent by God, and thus saith the Lord, they were testing that, as they should. So whatever, the, whatever they were doing, these, these false apostles, they were being tested by this church to make sure they were true or to see if they were false. And, and, and Jesus commends them for it. He also says that they have not grown weary. They have not grown weary in all of these things he has already said. They are continuing, even though they're tired, continuing to do these things. And he says that he commends them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus said, which, or the, the uh, angel said, which Jesus also hated. Jesus hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans, it's a little unclear to know exactly what their teachings were. But they're mentioned several times in the New Testament, especially in Revelations. So there's, and, and as we're going to see here, they were often, or they were, at least in this one time, they were paralleled with the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you remember, Balaam was the prophet, a strange one, a strange prophet, but he had obviously uh, giftings to be able to prophesy, to be able to speak blessings, speak curses, to be able to know the mind of God. God spoke to him, but there was something perverted about Balaam. Now, if you recall, Balaam is the one to whom his donkey spoke to him. I would love to tell this story. It's, it's, a, it's almost a comical one to read it, uh, but it's an incredible one as well. But Balaam, so Balaam was a, a, a prophet of sorts, but there was something crooked with, with him. And what we know, and it's, you can read about Balaam in Numbers. If you want to jot this down, if you want to read about Balaam, Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Um, but especially make sure you read uh, Numbers chapter 31 verse 16, because there it says, it explains what Balaam did. Just real quick, Balak, the king of the Moabites, I believe, uh, wanted, saw the Israelites coming. This is back in the day of Moses and the Israelites coming into, uh, coming into the land. And uh, Balak wanted, he was, they were fearful because they saw what they were doing and they knew there was a whole bunch of them there's no way that we can stand against him. So he wanted to hire Balaam, this prophetic kind of guy, to speak a curse over them. So he offers them money to come and curse the people of Israel. Balaam says, I can only say what God tells, tells me I can say. 
Uh, so you need to go tell your king that because the king sent messengers to invite him. And so he does, sends it back. They come back again. They offer him more money, da, 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 da. Balaam kind of wants money. He wants, but, but he knows he can't speak unless God allows him to, but he goes anyway. And then remember, there's this angel in the road with this sword drawn to smite him as he approached on his donkey. And the donkey swerves off the path because the donkey can see the angel. And it happens three times. And finally, Balaam gets off the donkey and starts whipping the donkey because the donkey won't stay on the path and won't listen to him. And God opens the donkey's mouth and the donkey starts talking to Balaam and saying, what are you doing? Have I not been faithful all the time that you've had me? Have I ever done this kind of thing before? And what's so funny is Balaam never misses a beat. He's like, well, yes. Why are you doing this? He doesn't even realize he's talking to his donkey. His donkey's talking to him. It's so funny. And finally, the donkey tells them, and, and God opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel that was standing there ready to smite him because God was unhappy with him that he was going there for money to, to see if he was going to be able to curse them or not. It's, it's just very interesting. So read it. It's, it's very interesting. So, but fast forward. God didn't allow him to curse the people of Israel. Actually, he made him speak a blessing over them. And instead, he cursed the people of Moab and the Midianites. He cursed the King Balak and his people. King Balak was so mad about this. But Balaam told him, I can't say, I can't speak a curse if God doesn't allow me to speak a curse. These are God's people. It's just incredible to see. It also helps teach you the power, the, the, the significance of the What's the power that's in our words? But anyway, Balaam later, he knows he can't speak a curse against the people of Israel, but what he does is he teaches the king, Balak, he, he tells them where the, um, a way to get around and to undermine the people of Israel. And he tells them, if you will get the women of your land, the Moabite women, to seduce the men and seduce them into not only sex, but worshiping their idols in the same kind of uh, atmosphere. So basically worshiping and, and through sex and basically luring them into sex, but also worshiping their idols. If you will do that, trouble will be on them. And that's what they do. And we read about what happens. And they, they begin to have sex with these Moabite daughter, daughters of the Moabite um, tribes and men. I say daughters, I'm talking about grown women. But, and, and they start to um, take part in some of their ritualistic stuff. And God's anger comes on them and he sends a plague that we read killed 24,000 before they were zealous enough to put, to take action and to stop what was going on, the people of Israel, to take action and to, to repent and to, and to take action to stop. God, God relented, but 24,000 had died already. Anyway, all of that to say, there seems to be a parallel between the Nicolaitans and the sin of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam. And so I think that we can, and most people will agree, there was something about the having a 
license to sin. Being a Christian and because of the grace of God means we can really do whatever we want. And there was often a sexual um, twist to that, a sexual um, part of that. And so we don't, again, we don't know exactly, but it seems to hint that it was something like that. And listen, hey, we can see that today. This kind of stuff has infiltrated the church and we really need to pay attention to this. Not only about, um, not only about sexuality and um, sexual choices and of uh, heterosexuality, homosexuality, not only about that, but all kinds of things that it has become um, perverted in today, today's world. And it's getting into the church. Listen, Jesus hated the works and teachings of the Nicolaitans. Jesus said this, and he commended the church that would not stand for it in the church, in their church. If there was someone in their church holding to these teachings or practicing this, they would not stand for it, and they would put them out of the church. Jesus commended them for that. We are going to need to be ready because the day is on our doorstep. Are we going to be the church that, that cowards to the world and allows the teaching of the world and teaching of the Nicolaitans or Balaam to infiltrate our church and we say it's okay or we tolerate it? Now listen, it doesn't mean you, you hate the people. It's not what I'm saying. We have to love them, but we do not tolerate the twisted teaching of God's truth. It's one thing for the world to do what they choose to do, but to say that God condones some of the things that are going on, that's where we must draw the line and stand firm. We will teach God's word and his truth, and we will not back down from that. All right, let's move on. So those are the things that they were doing right. Now, what were they doing wrong? Jesus said they had abandoned the love they had at first. He also says they had stopped doing the works they had did at first. They had done it first. Now, he says they had abandoned the love they had at first, or they had fallen from that. Now, we don't know for sure is Jesus was referring to the love for him, the love for each other, or the love for the lost. I would suggest that he could be talking about all three. I would definitely suggest he is including and talking about the, our love for each other. How did Jesus describe to us how we are to love him and to love God? He, he, one of the ways that he described it is we are to love one another. By loving one another, we love him. Now, when I say one another, I'm talking about us in this church. This church, us as a body, loving one another. Jesus' teaching on this was just, he emphasized this so much. So I think for sure we can say that 
falling from our first love can mean not only him, but it's kind of one and the same, loving one another. If we're not loving one another, John even says in his letters, we aren't loving God. And if we say we love God, but hate our brother or sister, we're a liar. The truth is not in us. So we actually have no right to say that we love God if we don't love one another. Whew, that's hard stuff. But that's Jesus. That's what he's telling us. So this church had fallen from their first love. I think it was loving God, loving Jesus, but also loving one another. And they had stopped doing the works that, that showed the reality of that love. Works, okay? Remember, we're not talking about the works of the law of Moses. We're talking about works of righteousness, good deeds. How did Jesus describe how you are to love your neighbor? What does that look like? Who is my neighbor? And you look at the story of the good Samaritan. How did that Samaritan love that Jewish man who had been beaten up, robbed, and left to die? How did he love him? We should pay attention to that because that's what Jesus is talking about. The works of righteousness look like that. And many, many other things to whom God's character and, and his mercy can flow through us to other people. Those are the works that he's talking about. All right, let's go to the next thing, which is how do they overcome? So we saw in this first letter, as we'll see in the other six, it speaks of Jesus is talking to those who overcome, those who are victorious, those who conquer. So the way they were to overcome was to remember. Jesus said, remember from where you had fallen. Remember the love you had in the beginning and now where you are now and how far you have fallen. So he says, remember. So many times God tells us to remember. Remember what happened to the Israelites when they did this. Remember the way you were back then. And now you have fallen from that. So that's what he's saying to them. Remember the way it was back then. So perhaps when you were first saved and you had this, this love that seemed to just kind of overflow from you. Remember that. Let's get back to that. Back then, it was easy to love one another. Remember that. Return to it. He also says, repent. This is something for which this church and these believers had to repent. They had to realize what was going on, confess what they were doing, going down that wrong path, and change their direction, change their mind and the direction. He told them to repent. And finally, he said, to do the works they did at first. Do those things that you did when your love was, was strong. Do those things. Those were good things. Those were works of righteousness. Those were things Jesus wanted them to do. 
Go back to that. So it's not just stuff we do with our mouth. It's not just repenting uh, and changing a direction. And it's not just that, but it's actually then doing the works that we used to do, doing those good things. And finally, what is the promised reward? Jesus said, now listen to this. After all of that, Jesus said, if they did these things, in other words, overcame these things or were victorious in these things, he said they would be allowed to enter the paradise of God and allowed to eat of the tree of life. What is the tree of life? This is the same, very same tree from which Adam and Eve were banished. God had given them, given them this tree of life to keep them healthy, to keep them well, to keep them living forever. But they chose to disobey and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when they shouldn't have. Therefore, God banished them from eating from the tree of life ever again and banished them from the garden. This is the same tree. And Jesus says, if we are overcomers in these ways, if we do these things and are overcomers, we are allowed to enter the paradise of God and are allowed to eat of the tree of life. Listen, these are not my words. You have read this letter for yourself. Am I adhering to what it has said. I want you to go back and study it at home because if I get anything off, I want to know because I want to correct it. But I am speaking from as best I can from what is in that letter that Jesus has said. So if you don't like it, it's not my problem, not my fault. You've got a problem with Jesus. Those who have ears, listen to what he's saying. Well, <clears throat> I don't think I'm going to be able to do um, another one. However, I've got another Sunday, and we'll have to jump right in. <laughs> so, yeah, I might need seven. That's right. <laughs> um, but listen, go home and read this. Read the seven letters. It's only really chapters two and three, but read chapters one through three for yourself, for yourselves, so that when we come and look at the rest of these letters, you, you'll be familiar. But also check me on this. Listen, Phil and I have said this again and again. Let me say it one more time. Never, listen to me, people, never accept what I say if you have not checked it out in Scripture. There are, there are teachers out there that won't say that. I'm telling you, please, if it doesn't check out in your Bible, throw it away. Never listen to it. Dismiss it. But if it does, receive it. Jesus said, those who have ears and hear, he is calling us to be overcomers. And as we approach these, these days, things are going to get 
worse. We are going to face greater and greater tribulation, greater and greater hardships, greater and greater challenges, challenges to compromise, challenges to back down on things we've always believed to be true because the world doesn't like them. And the pressure will be on. If you haven't experienced that or recognized that yet, open your eyes. It is happening. And it's coming towards us fast. We must be ready. Because if we're not ready beforehand, if we haven't prepared ourselves by being in God's word and understanding his truth and knowing his truth for ourselves, we are going to get blindsided. We are going to be overcome. We are not going to be able to stand and be victorious because we won't even know the truth. And so we'll cave to what everyone else is saying. We'll cave to the pressure. Now we are to be a church that shows love, but not at the compromise of truth. We have to be ready for what's coming. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words that you have written down, that you told your servant, John, write this down. It's for the churches. It's for my people, my servants. Write this down. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, that you gave that revelation to Jesus. And Lord Jesus, that you made sure it not only got to John and to your servants of that day, but it got to us. And Jesus, help us to to hear with our ears and, and to listen and to take hold of what you say. Not to be af- afraid or uh, offended so that we just ignore. We can't afford that. Jesus, we choose to receive and hear your words and receive them and put them into action, to take action based off of what you have said. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have made a way for us to live righteously by putting on your righteousness. Thank you that you have given your Holy Spirit to live in us and through us, giving us not only the desire to serve you and obey you, but the power to do it. God, may we stand firm in the face of the world, the culture, and Satan and his kingdom that is coming for us. May we stand firm and be ready. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.
to see you. 